before I share the Lord's commands with you these days, these instructions for how we are to live as Christians in the world, uh, there's an important thing we must remember. You are a beloved child of God. God loves you. You may not have had a loving earthly father. He may have been cold. He may have been cruel. He may have been distant. He may have been abusive. But you have a loving father in heaven. He wants what is best for you. He wants you to have joy and peace. He wants you to be happy. He's not a penny pincher in showing his love to you. And he's given you his Holy Spirit so you can grow up in your faith, mature and bear these fruits. And as we come to God's law today, I want to encourage you to pray, Father, Father, give me this fruit of your spirit. Give me joy. Give me peace. Give me love and patience and all the rest. If you pray that prayer, he will bless you. You will receive this blessing. It's guaranteed personally by the spirit who's at work in you. God in heaven wants you to grow up and manifest your family resemblance with your father. He wants you to love like him. He wants you to love as he loved you in his son, Christ Jesus. And today we see that Paul begins unpacking how to love God and neighbor. Mostly through our speech and mostly through our anger, which are intertwined with one another. Word, thought, and deed. So let's turn to Paul's instructions now, beginning in chapter 4, verse 25 of his letter to the Ephesians. This is God's holy word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me in our prayer of illumination found here in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit. So that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. I was blessed with a a wonderful father, but he was not a Christian man. And um, he could be a bit hard. 
I was the youngest of six kids and I followed him around all the time in the workshop and to his workplace and different things. And, um, I still remember a conversation I had when I was probably a senior in high school when for years I wanted to be like dad. I wanted to imitate my dad and fly big planes. And so I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. And one of the things that my dad was a little harsh about was money. And when money got tight, he got mad and angry. He wasn't a Christian man. I believe he died in the faith by God's grace. But growing up, he wasn't a Christian man. And so I'd planned to go to a free university, the Air Force Academy, and save my dad lots of money and make him happy. And then I felt a call to the ministry. And I kind of did the exact opposite and wanted to go to Stanford, (laughs) which would cost an unimaginable amount of money to my mind and understanding at that time. And for weeks, my stomach was in knots about having this conversation with my dad. I still remember it clear as day. Just trying to find the right time where I could break this news to him that I'd change my mind. I was so scared and shameful. I thought he would be angry with me. I didn't want to disappoint him. And I finally screwed up the courage. And I'm embarrassed now because I didn't realize how much he loved me. I didn't have anything to be afraid of. He probably knew weeks ahead of time, right? He wasn't an idiot. He said, Brian, I want you to do what makes you happy. Of course I'll support you. And he went to great lengths and took out big loans to do so on my behalf. And I'm forever in his debt. But Paul wants us to know that God loves us. That's the source of our love for others. There's no other source. Because we're sinners. In our rebellion from God, we flushed all our love down the drain. The catechism says, and probably it's the most difficult question and answer. Do you love God? No, I hate God and neighbor. Swallow that. Take that on. Understand what we believe as Christians about our fallen human nature. And having called the Ephesian church to a new way of living in chapter 4. He says, remember, I urge you to walk this new way. He grounds it in the unity of the church. He says, be humble and loving to maintain the unity that was given to you as a gift. And he grounds it in the unity of the Trinity. The triune unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he grounds it in the gifts, the grace, the ascended Christ showers on us and pastors and teachers. And he grounded it in the new creation. That old hateful man has been taken off, been put in the grave. He's kicking and screaming all the way. But he's done and finished. And the new man is covering you, clothing you. You're growing up into this new creature. And now finally, after all of this wind-up, classic Paul, right? Like throat clearing. But it's not throat clearing. He starts rattling off, rapid fire, some commands. And there are, in this section we read today, by my count anyway, uh, remember I've been talking about the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is who you are, statements of fact. And the imperative are, therefore now go do this. There are 12 imperative verbs, commands. There are other participles and infinitives that also have that same imperative force. So it's, it's really more than 12. But remember, 
The Apostle Paul says, this I say and testify in the Lord in verse 17. He is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. Your Lord, in these words, is standing before you, issuing these commands. And there's this contrast. Remember, he said in verse 17, Walk not like the Gentiles. Put off those old ways, but you need to replace them with new ways. And he will conclude this section in verse 2 of chapter 5. And this is one part where the modern chapter divisions aren't helpful. That's why we read through 5.2. By saying, walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk not like a Gentile, but walk in love as Christ. And these are the commands. Speak the truth. Don't be angry in a sinful way. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't steal. Do good work. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Only talk that builds up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath be put away. Twice he uses that language of of putting away the old man. The same language of what has already occurred. When Christ and his spirit put the old man off us in the new birth. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Be imitators. Imitate God. And finally, walk in love. Paul's instructions here are comprehensive. They'll go throughout most of the rest of the book. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds. They speak, brothers and sisters, to our hearts, to our temperament. Be tender. Be tender-hearted. They speak to our careers, to our work ethic. I was reading Calvin's sermon this morning. He says, there are lots of careers you really can't do and be a good Christian. I'm not sure I, I, I sign on to that. But some callings might put you in a bad spot on a regular basis. Do good work with your own hands so you can share. Don't just pursue money for its own sake. But they show a remarkable focus. And this is what I'm going to highlight today because Paul highlights it on our speech and on our anger. He focuses on the danger, the threat that anger and angry words pose not only to our individual faith, but to the well-being of the church, to the Christian community. Remember, Ephesians is the book of the church. It's really a teaching about the church. And this is serious judgment day stuff. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, who's a seal of the day of redemption. You were saved for more than this. You were saved for holiness. And even in the midst of a dozen imperatives, Paul never drifts from the gospel. He never drifts from the good news. The fact of God's saving work for us in Christ Jesus. Be imitators of God because God the Father loves you. Forgive like Christ. For Christ has forgiven you. Live self-sacrificial lives. For he gave himself up for us. Fragrant offering to God on our behalf. Calvin, in his sermons, reminds us that um, it's not enough to tell the Christian, love. Go love one another. That's true. It's an accurate summary. But it's not sufficient for the life of sinners growing up after Christ. Because we need to have the law held up to us to unpack and reveal the sinfulness of our sin. And I'll close today with Calvin's closing prayer. It's really beautiful. His sermons, if you ever read them, and they're available in print, um, close with his prayer from the pulpit, his closing prayer. And almost every time his closing prayer, it follows a rough uh, rubric. And he says, let us cast ourselves down before you, Lord, and reveal to us the magnitude of our sin and the grace we've received from you so that we might apply this word to our life and go live lives of gratitude. 
It's a beautiful prayer. So, what does Paul have for us today? First, the primacy of our words, our speech. Paul begins unpacking the new creation with a focus on truth and falsehood. For this reason, you must put off falsehood and speak truth with your neighbor. And he's returning to what he already said as he made a number of sort of false starts between before being knocked off in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Isn't that interesting? He starts with truth. Speak the truth in love. You have put off the old man, so you have to put off the lies of the old man. Same verb. Notice Paul can't go very far giving us imperatives without going back to the indicatives. He never leaves the gospel behind. We are members of one another. That's the good news. That's why and how we can speak truth and love to one another. That motivates our love for one another. As he'll say later in chapter 5, no one ever hated his own flesh. No one in their right mind harms their own body. We nourish it. We cherish it. And our words reflect this concern. Calvin says, we don't prefer one finger to another. I quite like my whole hand. Thank you very much. Paul's concern here remains corporate, focused on the church. Yes, speaking the truth is a universal moral law of God. You can do ethics from the Ten Commandments and it applies to every living, breathing soul on the planet. But the Ninth Commandment does in fact mean that we never bear false witness anywhere. But, here's the but, but Paul is speaking how our neighbors in the church and how we speak to our neighbors in the church. So he begins, in, as it were, the nursery. The greenhouse of the Christian faith. The church is where we plant these little seeds and nurture them. Um, it's hard enough to love your boss when he's really ticking you off. <laughs> it's hard enough to love that colleague when they're dumping all their work on you and taking all the credit. Right? You've been there? But the new creation, the unity in the body of Christ, grounds and propels and fuels the obedience of the Christian life. In a new way, it enables us to take baby steps in obedience and holiness. Here in the church. It's like training wheels for the Christian faith. And Paul, uh, as we read from the Old Testament, is quoting Zechariah 8. And Zechariah is prophesying of the remnant, God's people, coming back into Jerusalem. These are the things that you shall do, he says. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God hates falsehood. And importantly, in that Zechariah vision, later on, we didn't read the whole chapter, it's lengthy. The Gentiles are streaming in. So this is a vision of the church as it's gathered from the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. People want to be a part of what's going on here. And that's another way the love within the body of Christ is evangelistic and transformative in the world. We need these training wheels to begin tiny little ways to make progress in love. It is the peace of God's people, the fruitfulness of this new Jerusalem that shows that God's Holy Spirit is in our midst. 
And it attracts the peoples to come from the ends of the earth. It's a sign of the new creation breaking in. It's cosmic stuff. Paul appears, after this opening verse, to abruptly change the subject to anger. Seemingly giving the command to be angry, which is a strange new coming. It's a good proof that just quoting the Bible isn't enough, right? The Bible says be angry. It's an imperative verb. But in an important sense, he's still talking about speech. He's quoting Psalm 4. Paul is, of course, not commanding us to be angry. Rather, he is commanding us to not be angry in a sinful way. Don't be sinfully angry, we might paraphrase. This is an Old Testament quote from Psalm 4. Within the covenant community, King David is being attacked. And King David says, be angry. He's speaking to his, to his opponents in Jerusalem. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The parallel in the poem of Psalm 4 to uh, do not sin is be silent. Paul, thinking of Psalm 4, is commanding the church to not speak out in their anger. Husbands, don't talk. Just be quiet (laughs) when you get angry. Take a breath or two. Same goes for wives, right? What if we were just slow about our speech? Rather, ponder in your hearts. He's saying, don't act on your anger. You're going to be angry. This goes back to the beginning of chapter 4 when he says, walk as befits your new calling and you're going to need patience and long-suffering because you're going to have to deal with a lot of other people and they're sinners, just like you are. Indeed, there's an interaction here. When we speak rash, angry words, it often makes us feel more angry. Our words shape our thoughts and our actions and vice versa. And I'll return, I'm going to skip over the instruction of thieves because I'm sort of doing this a little topically today. But in verse 29, he continues with instructions about speech. Again, how important are our words? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, gospel, grace. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, command, gospel, grace. This language for corrupting speech comes straight from Jesus, as do many of Paul's instructions and commands. It is the word that Christ uses in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches us that a bad or diseased tree bears bad or diseased fruit. So, Matthew uh, 7, I believe, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, Christ underlining the importance of our striving for holiness. Paul's instruction, like Christ, calls for replacing the evil ways of the old man with the good fruits of the new man. If you just try to stop sinning and don't replace it with righteous living, you will fail. Sin is our default mode. We don't want to speak diseased words that cause disease or spread in the body of Christ. Any way you want, you don't want an infected finger to infect the other finger, to spread up your arm or down your leg. 
And the way to stop speaking diseased words is to start speaking constructive words, grateful words, gracious words that are fitting to needs at hand. And the word need here is repeated. It's the same word from the previous verse about the thief giving to those in need. You see, the works of the new creation have this in common. They're all motivated by love. They're motivated by the needs of fellow members of the body of Christ. When you love someone, you think of them first. Our membership in the body leads us to care about the other parts of the body, to seek to build them up and keep them healthy. This is the essence of love. St. Augustine wrote movingly on this. Sin is selfishness. Sin is being curved in on oneself, but love is caring for the other. And grace and love transform us to outward loving focus. This is why when our catechism teaches through the Ten Commandments, and it's a very useful set of instructions... It does so by talking about what each commandment positively requires and what it forbids. You can turn with me to page 893 in your Psalter hymnal. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid, under penalty of God's wrath, every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. You see, the positive and the negative. Are we doing these things? We use our words not to corrupt. I could tell you to turn over to the Westminster Larger Catechism. And there are two questions on the Ninth Commandment. Prohibitions and enjoinments uh, run almost a full page. It's quite the powerful reading. Do we put the best possible spin on our neighbor's word, on our spouse's word, on our friend's word? Do we not believe a negative report about our enemy or do we jump at it? Think about our our, our civil lives and our engagement with uh, politics and media. This is very difficult to do if you read and believe headlines. If you really want to see, again, this approach, it's on page 958, the full page of duties in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Always remember, and this is, I think, an important lesson here as we draw to the close in this section on speech, that the gospel enables Protestants, Reformed Christians, To preach the law more powerfully. The catechism at the end of the Ten Commandments says. If we're saved by grace. Why should we preach the law so strongly? And we preach this law so strongly. Because we have Christ. Because we have the good news of the gospel. I'm not preaching a law. That any of you will satisfy today. I'm preaching with the expectation. That you're all going to fail before you get home. That's how sinful we are. But the good news is that God gives us his spirit. And we grow. That's the good news. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so out of gratitude, we grow up into this truth. God loves us as his own dear children. He takes us by the hand and he leads us and he gives us his spirit and he shows us the way. He is a kind and loving father. He is imparting his character to us bit by bit. Moms and dads, you know what it's like to try to form the character of your children. It is a daily, progressive work. 
as one of my good friends always puts it, it's like the water and the stream running over the rock over a lifetime, smoothing it down, making us beautiful. How patient is our father? How kind? How tenderhearted? Calvin says our sins are always far greater than we can imagine. The thing that we struggle to bear with our neighbor, God bears far more than that in us every day. How patient he is. Do we deserve it? No. And yet he gives and he gives and he gives. His grace pours over us like a shower. And in this vein, Paul continues in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This serves as something of a connection between speech and anger. uh, And it sort of transitions here. But Paul's using the language, again, probably alluding to or quoting from Isaiah 63. About the wilderness generation. The day of Massa and Meribah. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy. And himself fought against them. You see, the devil and the spirit are in this passage. Because these activities... This obedience shapes and strengthens and builds and grows our faith in the body of Christ. And these sins, if we indulge them, tear the body apart and they threaten our very faith. The Exodus, where the people, Massa and Meribah, spoke bitterly to the Lord, right? It was their bitterness. And Paul will say, let all bitterness be put away. They grumbled against God because they were angry at him. And this brings us to the second broad topic I want to discuss today. Anger, a close second and cousin to speech. False speech and angry words are both toxic to the new creation. The unity which the church enjoys and the New Testament warns again and again and again about turning from our worldly ways of dealing with anger. And these are woven together in verse 31. Bitter, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Along with all malice. These are things that grieve the spirit in the wilderness. The grumbling, the mumbling, the complaints against God. What he's saying here is that when you are angry with your neighbor. When you lie about your neighbor. When you bear false witness. You're doing that to God. You're sinning against God. Because God in his spirit wants there to be unity in his church. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, again, connects these two things. Our hearts, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. That's four things, I know. But he connects them. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus reminds us that angry thoughts and words are murder. One of our uh, uh, former members of the church had one of his young, younger sons, and I think we were in catechism class, and he was like five years old, Theodore Madsen. And uh, I said, you know, do you ever break the sixth commandment, murder someone? He's like, I murder every day. I, I'm so angry at my brother. He's a fool. <laughs> what a well-catechized child. He got it. Would that we all got it, right? Like that? James writes, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people made in the likeness of God. You see how this offends the Spirit? The warning against grieving the Holy Spirit is a reminder that every sin is a sin against God. And the threat to the church posed by false speech is existential. This is the day of redemption. What does he say? Don't let the sun go down on your anger or you will give the devil an opportunity, a foothold as it were. Going back to be angry and do not sin. Calvin says this in his commentary. There are three faults by which we offend God in our being angry. The first is when our anger arises from slight causes and often from no cause whatsoever or at least from private injuries or offenses. The second is when we go beyond the proper bounds and are hurried into intemperate excesses. And the third is when our anger, which ought to have been directed against ourselves or against sin, is turned against our brethren. Most appropriately, therefore, did Paul, when he wished to describe the proper limitation of anger, employ the well-known passage, Be ye angry and sin not. We comply with this commandment. If the objects of our anger are sought, not in others, but in ourselves. If we pour out our indignation against our own faults. With respect to others, we ought to be angry, not at their persons, but at their faults. Nor ought we to be excited to anger by private offenses, but by zeal for the glory of the Lord. Lastly, our anger after a reasonable time ought to be allowed to subside without mixing itself with the violence of carnal passions. And again... This is where Calvin asks, how many faults does God bear with you every day? And how do you bear with your brother? And this brings us to the third point, really. The antidote to false speech, the antidote to angry words is really love and forgiveness. It's the gospel. And that's why Paul lands it here with the gospel. It is important to note, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You are a beloved child of your heavenly father. Once again, Paul is inspired by the words of Jesus. In Luke's telling of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6, he says, love your enemies and do good and lend Expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We grow up into the character of the God we worship and love. Christ calls us to love our enemies, to be kind to those who are ungrateful to the evil, to be merciful. Jesus says elsewhere, it's nothing to love your friends. The Gentiles do that. So God calls us to forgive. Forgiveness is the antidote to anger. Not because anyone deserves it, but because we've been forgiven. It's the only reason to forgive. When we forgive our enemies, we are sons of the Most High. We are imitating God. We love like God loved us. We love people who don't deserve it in that moment, ever, maybe ever, right? We love when uh, he sent his son to die for us. And this forgiveness, as God in Christ forgave us, is so important, right? It's embedded in our Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is why in Matthew 18, when Jesus teaches us how to regain a brother from sin, he talks about loosing our brothers from forgiving their sins. He talks about the keys of the kingdom. 
And Peter comes up after this, and this is just the, the most amazing interaction. Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I just love that framing there, right? How often am I going to be sinned against? It's not just how often do I forgive. How often am I going to be sinned against? And Jesus says, oh, a lot. You're going to be sinned against a lot. As many as seven times? No, 77 times. He'll keep sinning against you. Husbands, wives, brothers, sisters. You have to learn to deal with offenses the whole of your Christian life. And you'll keep forgiving him by the grace of God. Because you've been forgiven. So much more. And this is the point of the parable that follows about the unforgiving servant, right? The master forgives an unpayable, unimaginable debt. The numbers in the text would like blow the mind. They're like five times the debt of the U.S. Treasury. Really, really big. We are the debtor in this parable. And Jesus forgives him. And that guy goes out and tries to collect like a $5 debt so he can go buy a hamburger or something. And he throws his fellow servant in jail. He's telling this to Peter, who's getting ready to betray him. Who he would restore. Who he forgives. We must forgive as we are forgiven. Not to earn the forgiveness of Christ. He doesn't forgive us only insofar as we forgive. That's not how it works. But we forgive to evidence the forgiveness of Christ. As our catechism teaches, forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. The forgiveness of Christ, the love of Christ is the new reality. The new man, when he says, put on the new man, the new man is Jesus. We're made after his image. You don't ever have to collect another debt. God's got it all. He paid for it all. All debts are fully paid. Our new identity is forgiven ones, beloved ones, loved by the Father and loved by the Son so we may love one another. And we will love one another perfectly in the fullness of time. I'm going to close with Calvin's closing prayer on this sermon. Pardon the old-timey language. Now let us prostrate ourselves before the majesty of our good God, with acknowledgement of our faults, praying him to make us so to feel them more and more, that it may draw us to true repentance. And yet, nevertheless, we do not doubt that he bears with us, in order that in humility we should ask his mercy and forgiveness, assuring ourselves that he will hear us if we keep the way he shows us by his word and reform us more and more according to his image, so that we may give a true proof That as we call upon him as our father, so we covet nothing else but to be his true children. Now we bow ourselves down and thank the good father in heaven. Amen.